Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. It's been beautiful in New York. Just celebrated the election in New York outside over the weekend. Um, went down to Washington Square Park, tried to stay away from the people because <laughs> it was like a literal picture of COVID down there. But it was um, nice to see everyone happy. How about you? Yeah, shout out Philly, shout out Pennsylvania. That was crazy. I feel like I single-handedly flipped the state, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was all you. Yeah. You're like the vote that Trump wants to recount it. <laughs> like, <laughs> <coming> down. <laughs> yeah, like, not to give myself too much credit, but if I <laughs> woken up and voted, who knows? Uh, it's funny because me and Alina were just heading to the grocery store and like people started like banging pots and pans and like we had no like it took us like a minute to guess what was going on we we had no idea we were like yo it's like the purge (laughs) people are going crazy we need to get back to the apartment (laughs) yeah because I like literally in the world we're living in now People banging on pots and pans could really be anything. I was like, there's a parade, but why is there a parade everywhere? (laughs) This can't be a good sign. I found out literally because of my dad. Shout out Tal. He texted texted the family group chat saying, Biden won. (laughs) He texted before the New York Times gave me a notification, so... Shout out Tao for keeping me updated. I think like what was most like fun to me about this last weekend was just seeing cities be happy. I feel like it's been so long since cities have been happy and like it wasn't great seeing people like being dumb and like clustering up but it was it, it just felt like a relief especially in New York it's just felt so like tense and just seeing that tension loosen up for even just like a day was great. Dude, that day was so good. Like, the vibes were just, it was, it felt like we were in, like, a dream. Like, probably because the bar is so low for how life be now. But, like, like, the fact that the sun was shining and, like, the fucked up electoral college system that we're in still swung even slightly in the chance, like, to Biden, which, like, obviously the bar is so low for, like, you know, (laughs) but either way, you know, like, so obviously, um, Biden was not my first choice, and obviously, like, probably starting from next week, I'm gonna be on that fuck the institution vibe, but, but for now, we can be happy that we voted Trump out. Yeah, I mean, like, um, one of my friends said it best was just, like, you don't have to be happy, but, like, I feel, like, satisfied, you know? Like, it could have been, like, worse. I think um, that, like, even if you're not, like, you know, even if you're not a big Biden fan, like, like um, the fact that we voted Trump out is still a big win, and it's okay. Celebrate that. I'm sure people have had enough politics in the last couple of days, so we're going to move on to our show. We've got a great show for y'all today. We are going to be interviewing Ravish Momin, one half of the group turning jewels into water over a cup of trio. 
Great, let's get started. So for this week's episode, I chose Trio, not because I like it, but because one of my friends interned there this summer as um, like a marketing intern, and I had to help her with a lot of her little marketing gimmicks, um, including lighting sparklers for an Instagram story and constantly having to do photo shoots with this drink. Um, again, I don't like this drink. I think that it's kind of gross. Trio, you made a mistake by hiring this intern, she who shall not be named, because, you know, we don't want to throw her under the bus here, but I wouldn't have known about your drink if, um, my friend had an intern there, and now that I know about it, I hate it. What about you, Sam? Um, I was actually in an advertisement for the drink directed by, uh, the friend that we were referring to. Um, and that's when I learned I couldn't act. I spent about 30 minutes reciting two lines. Um, there's also a part in the ad where the drink had to be thrown to me. Um, and I kept missing the catch. So, <laughs> but what I do remember is that the day that I was, you know, shooting the ad on set, um, it was about like, in 95 degrees or something insane so i drank like multiple bottles of this and it's not bad it tastes like um it tastes like powerade but a little more like real fruity but minus the sugar and like replace with that like fake sugar that they put in diet coke if that doesn't sound appetizing to you then i i wouldn't pick it up but i mean i found it refreshing Sam, if that's the best way you can describe that drink, it clearly sucks. <laughs> you know, as someone once said, any publicity is good publicity. And this episode will be called Trio and an Interview with Rubbish. So, you know, we might be tearing on this drink, but we still giving it some publicity. So... Exactly, and it's a good drink. It was founded by the son of the founder of Snapple. That's the one thing that I learned from acting in the ad. <laughs> All right, moving on to things that we like. <laughs> this week, we will be interviewing Ravish Momin from Turning Jewels into Water. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this interview because both Robish Moment and Turning Jewels into Water just have very cool live performances that I've seen, um, as well as just really know how to kind of challenge this idea of genres and also um, reconsider what it means to really like fetishize a lot of music. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and if you haven't heard of them, they have a great album out this year titled Our Reflection Adorned by Newly Formed Stars. And part of what they try to do on the project is um, come up with a new way to kind of conceptualize our idea of, or not even conceptualize, like redefine how we think of global music and kind of examine the colonial ways and the ways that we have kind of come to see music that's non-Western as global. So I really hope we get to dig into that. And also the, the music's just awesome. Um, very like glitchy, very all over the place. Um, 
it's a really fun record to listen to in general and i cannot wait to um get a little more uh, perspective on their work and specifically Ravish's role in turning jewels into water should we call up Ravish right now yep let's call up hey guys hi i'm just having my morning coffee (laughs) but thank you so much for like talking with us today we loved the new album and we just wanted to like ask a couple questions about it and just like your entire project because a lot of the stuff you're doing is super fascinating Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I checked you guys out and just love the diversity from more mother to Mavi. And it's just super cool what you guys are doing. So um, yeah, this is um, perfect timing for this. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Um, I guess like the first thing we, that we were both wondering about was um, if I know the new album was really influenced by like, kind of redefining global music. Um, and how would you say for people who haven't heard it, this album, like, redefines that global sound? So one of the big things for me, especially as a person of color also is the idea that um, when you make music, so we have rock, jazz, blues, Afrobeat, all these genres, and then there's like world music. I'm like, there's no, like we just lumped the entire world. You could be from like Shanghai or from Kampala or from Jakarta or from, you know, Lagos, and there's no way it could all be the same, you know? So for me, that was a big sticking point. Like, it's not all the same. This idea of this global music is just not one entity. And then number two, the minute they see you as, oh, you look like you're from such and such background, well, where your native instruments or where your native clothing or why do you dress like this and not like in your, you know, where's your sitar or where's your, you know, and, and, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, how come you're not performative of your ethnic identity, you know? So I uh, like Val and I both like challenge that, you know, she's Haitian and she is raised in a Vodun family with like deep uh, cultural roots, but she plays all digital instruments. And, and same with me, I'm channeling all this stuff, but like, I'm not showing up with like Indian instruments or, you know, uh, just like performative of trying to be, um, you know, uh, some kind of like a ethnic, you know, identity, you know? So that's like a big thing. So that's the first thing you'll notice. It's like, we're making what I call like, you know, I call it digital folk music, you know? <laughs> um, which folk music to me always just meant music of of our time, music of the people, and it's digital. And that's that's what it starts out to be. <clears throat> yeah, that's funny. Our second question was actually like, just how do you define digital folk? So thanks so much for <laughs> running through that for us. Well, yeah, I, know, I think Teresa wanted to ask something about the ensemble you lead, Teresa. I read that you guys um, lead an ensemble of musicians from around the world, you know, to challenge this ethnic fetishizing of like global and world music. So I know you explained a little bit about that concept, but also like when did you personally first come across this as a problem um, in your career or your personal life? I mean, it's been a problem for a long time, you know, Um, since like the early 2000s, you know, I've been professionally touring and, you know, recording for 
a couple of decades now. And um, so my, one of my first projects was this band called Tarana, which was like a jazzier thing. It was all acoustic, uh, but I was working with this Chinese American violinist, Jason Kao Huang from Chicago. And, but we weren't doing Chinese music. We weren't doing Indian music. And the bassist was like from the Middle East. And, but we were doing like a, a free world music, like more kind of like, it was just, just taken from all these things, but it wasn't trying to be like, anything it was just it was brooklyn you know like we all live in brooklyn and i was like that's the best thing about you know living in you know new york to me is just like everyone's together and we're just trying to just you just exist in that world you don't think about it you know so for me it was that but then we didn't get accepted into the jazz world because it wasn't jazzy the world music people were like well you guys aren't really playing indian music or chinese music or middle eastern music so it's none of those so so for me to like answer your question um it's been like on my mind for a long time and then especially became really obvious when i started doing like digital music because like the same even in new york you know like for instance like we can't really go to a club like elsewhere or nowadays uh they'd be like oh you guys are on djs or you know you're not you're showing up with acoustic um you guys are playing stuff i'm like okay cool so we'll go to like issue project room or roulette or something and they'd be like oh well but you guys are like beat based so that's not really experimental music i'm like okay so you know what i mean like it's always been this thing like i mean why why do we have all these kind of like categories to like push people into corners you know so it's been a thing on my mind for a long time and i don't know um it, i mean i'm hoping this conversation is a good place to start to set people to think about our own uh perceptions and our own like um you know prejudices against you know what those things mean and and um you know and just like look at a new way of, and think of new ways of looking at it now just going off of that a little bit so do you think that like music should be put into genres like is there still any value to that at all i mean that's a good point i think like i mean there are specific genres like you could be a uh, you know jungle producer you could be um, afrobeat musician you could be a soul singer so i think there is value to that and um it, uh, so okay so for starters it's not up to me in, in a sense if you choose to decide like that's like what you want to label yourself that's fine but in in general i think it's a different thing here we're talking about two things one also like how i think about it and also how the marketing world thinks about it you know i think in that world i do agree with you more that um it should be looser because everything's changing you know our ideas are changing and um and to pigeonhole it in such a way like when you go on spotify it's a good example right like you listen to us and then always also says, you may also like, and it lists artists, you know, or whatever you listen to. I'm like, well, I might like, you know, Flying Lotus, but I might like Johnny Cash, you know? It's, it's like, <laughs> they're so different, you know? But Spotify is never gonna suggest, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Johnny Cash if I'm listening to a lot of Flying Lotus. But so that's the problem for me. It's just like, I think people are fluid, uh, just like, you know, gender is fluid, people's ideas of um, music is fluid. But we live in this age where we're, we, we, we get forced into things, um, especially with music, you know? And that's a big problem in this age of like Spotify and uh, uh, all these algorithms and the way that works. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I never thought about uh, like how Spotify puts things in the boxes like that. Um, but another thing, and this is kind of going down the genre route, but I we're both from Chicago and I hear a lot of like footwork influence in your music. Yeah. 
<laughs> and could you like talk a little bit about how like footwork has influenced your work or like just more generally like it could be like footwork jersey club any any of these like american um like regional dance music so i mean yeah i mean val uh, my partner um she is super into dj, DJ rashad and that's like a big influence for her. Just the way she cuts up her vocal samples has a lot to do with the way she thinks about how the juke producers uh, think about, you know, samples and how they, you know, like take all that together. So I want to say at the beginning, um, we're not trying to be juke producers and we're very aware of not being culturally appropriative, um, you know, because, you know, I mean, God, in this day and age, like people just steal people's ideas and just make it their own, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I invented that or, you know, so what if like, you know, these people in Chicago made it, I can make it in, you know, Denmark or in someplace else and not give them credit. So that was a big thing. So we look at it as like, it's super important to uh, uh, acknowledge the influences. And um, one of my first uh, pivotal experiences in that sense was like seeing DJ Rashad uh, play a live set at um, 258 Kent Street, which is no longer there. I think it's now the offices of Vice Magazine um, in, you know, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And um, he played a stud and he came on at like one or two in the morning and played till like 5 a.m. And it was a sweaty, crazy night. There was no ACs. They were hosing down the audience with like water. It was like a throwback to the old rave scene. You know, it was just like, this is amazing. And it was just a sort of flawless set. He played like channeling jazz and soul and um, just all these amazing black musical influences. And it was just, for me, just like so eye-opening to see like wow you know like i thought of myself as like trying to create the digital energy that he was creating in my own way you know so that was a big influence and so dj rashad then went back and like studied a lot of the masters and dj earl and dj sluggo and obviously rp boo and then really got into jay lynn also um so that's always like for me and val i know in our background the way we think about how we want to cut up our samples and how the you know how we think about bass you know so that's always like filtered into a lot of our stuff. I also saw that um, you and Val, like um, much, a lot of your projects are rooted in improvisation. So can you speak a little bit more about what that, what improvisation like brings to the table and why do you have this focus on sort of like more spontaneity? So both of us come from like jazzier stuff. Like uh, she also toured a lot with like playing with jazz musicians. And same with me um, in my 2000s, I was touring with like, actually speaking of Chicago, um, you know, the AACM, which you guys may or may not know, you know, it's from Chicago, you know, the Advanced Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians was in 69, started in the South Side of Chicago. And so I was touring with uh, Maurice McIntyre, who was one of the early members of that scene. And all these Latin legends came out of that scene. Um, so for me, um, Chicago is always at the root of a lot of this stuff. And improvisation is a big part of jazz. And also being Indian, um, improvisation is a big part of Indian music. You know, when you're playing classical music, we just take a theme and just like go off on it. Uh, so that was fundamentally part of our, you know, identity. But when we got to electronic music, I was like, hmm, like what if we try to create like an electronic music that has like this really intense, like, you know, vibe but then we can kind of like make it up and we can improvise you know and i felt like there was a whole new area for us to explore where 
you know, we hadn't seen a lot of that, you know, like when I, again, um, you know, talking about Flying Lotus earlier, he was another big influence on me hearing like how loose he made like those 1984 EPs and how just amazing and elastic that music was. And it was all electronic. And I was just like, I want that in my music, you know, I want that energy in my improvisation, you know, like to have it be loose and just like really like elastic, but then still have this like, there's a beat, there's a pulse, there's a bass line, there's all these things that kind of like center it, you know, so, so that is the root and then the improvisation energy, again, comes from Indian music, from Haitian music, from jazz, so that, it's like the, um, it sits on top of it and it kind of creates this like, uh, you know, looser structure and under this something that's a little more rigid, you know. Um, so I think it works for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely works. But I think you can see that energy too in your guys's um, live performances. And obviously, I haven't gotten the chance to see you live, but like watching the live streams was awesome. And just you guys look so happy while you're performing can you talk to me a bit about um like what energy you try to bring or what performing feels like i mean i mean that's such a loaded question right do you mean performance feels like in 2020 or in general you know i think it's so much more powerful in 2020 i haven't really played any shows all my tours and performances have yeah and so just as everybody else we know, you know, and um, so just to be on the same stage and roulette this, I think it's the live stream you're referring to, uh, was awesome because it's a really huge open big theater. So we already knew that we wouldn't be like clustered together and, you know, we could still say, you know, social distance and still play together. So that was a big game changer because otherwise, you know, it's just hard to you know, play together, right? Um, so that was amazing. And, you know, Val and I have been together for two years touring and our first actual tour was right as soon as this band came together in 2018. And then we went to Europe for three weeks and we hadn't really even rehearsed that much. And now we're in Europe for three weeks. And so we just got really good at just like playing together, you know, and like, and being on the road is really deep because like when it's just you guys, and nobody else on, in a car or in a train or in a plane together for hours and hours at a time. And you have to make these like really tight schedules. I think it just, you just get a new appreciation for each other. You know? And it either works or it doesn't. Like you could be with somebody that you love as amazing, as a great human being, as a great person, but maybe you just can't get along with them for six hours in their car, you know? <laughs> That's, I mean, it's true. It's like, right? So I've been touring for so long. I, I, I choose to tour with people. I, I know that I can hang out with them for hours and hours and go through this insane, um, we gotta be at the airport at five in the morning, then we get off the plane at like 11.30 and then we have to immediately get in a bus and that bus is gonna be a four hour ride and we're gonna hit sound check at 7.30. Just, you just make it work. And you know, you don't have to think about that other person uh, being spaced out or just not checked in, you know? So that was a big part of it. So we just have this energy together. So when we're on stage, we just know that we just vibe together and that's a big part of just our connectedness. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I noticed in the live streams was the presence of the dancers. What do you, what did you feel like they added to the presentation of the music? Um, so this was actually a part of a big grant that I got. Um, it was a whole thing. I actually wrote up a narrative about climate change and the dancers actually represent elements of like human beings who are like being affected by climate change. So the first dancer represents like Mother Earth and the second dancer represents humanity. And we'd actually worked together in 2018 
uh, for an official music video we shot. And again, same thing. The dancers also had never worked together. Ivy um, is a flex dancer from East Brooklyn. And the other dancer, Radakini, is from Washington, D.C. And, you know, totally different styles. But they just blended. And we were like, there's amazing dancers in New York, obviously. But since you guys have this vibe, let's find a way to bring you guys back together. So, so in this narrative that we made, um, the dancers and also the video projections, it's all part of this narrative that the video projection has this movement. It goes from like the world just collapsing and then a human being feeling the consequences. And then the third movement is about like how human beings like we get empowered to reclaim our identity and to like fight it and to like really understand that, you know, it's not about, for instance, in this narrative about just individual actions, it's about solidarity and coming together as like, you know, a united force of people. And that's really what's gonna bring about change, not just for climate justice, but for, you know, anything. So the dancers in this little narrative, I mean, it's a little abstract. Um, we didn't have a lot of costuming or designing with like set, but they represent, if you watch it again with this in mind, you'll see like how they act out like just different elements of like being frightened or scared or like pushed down and then like rising again. So that was a big part of this piece. And also in general, like we just love working with dancers. Dance and music go together in Indian music and Haitian music and obviously in electronic dance music. So it was a no brainer. And, uh, and, and luckily we had the budget to make it work. I also saw like kind of like on this note of collaboration um, so I know that you and Val met sort of like through the Pioneer Works initiative in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't know if this is a question. I'm just like spitballing here. But um, also, I know a lot of rappers in Chicago, they like met through also like art initiatives, like in terms of like pushing boundaries, because y'all are collaborating, like that's how you meet people. Like, where do you think the role of like community plays in pushing like musical genres and like meeting new people through these like initiatives if that makes sense that, that's a big part of it that's also why i think we're talking right like hopefully we're creating a community here hopefully we'll have some eyes and ears on this and hopefully drive it to the music and then beyond that drive it to all these other things you guys have been asking right what is this all about what is global music, you know, what is all this stuff? And and what is it to be a person of color, to be having all these disparate identities in 2020, you know, what does it also mean? You know, I mean, I mean, tomorrow, who knows what's gonna happen, but regardless of what happens for us, we have to stay determined and focused as artists and, and, and you know, and point out uh, these things and continue to fight it because otherwise it's not gonna um, change, you know? So, so Teresa, to answer your question, like, that's a big part of I think of every day. And I think community is so important to make that happen, you know, like whether it's Pioneer Works or, um, uh, you know, this magazine or if it's a club or if it's a social justice organization. And the other part of that, I think is for me also, it's really important is like, who is bringing that community together, you know? And I've been thinking about that more and more, you know, for example, in music, Think of any music magazine you guys might read or listen, whether it's Pitchfork or, you know, like Stereo Gum, whatever, you know, like if you think about that as a community, right? A resident advisor, uh, 
who's controlling it, who is in charge of it, who are the people bringing that community together, you know? And is it just a bunch, to be blunt, like a bunch of like privileged white people? Um, or is it people of color, people who are queer, people who are trans, people who are a working class? And class is a big component to all this. You know, a lot of times when people talk about like people of color, they don't talk about class, you know? Like you could be a rich Indian, you could be rich Asian um, and have no idea what it's like to be working class, Chinese working class, um, Indian working class, uh, Ghanaian, you know, it's, it's such a different thing. So for me, like, who's in charge of this stuff, you know? And so the community is absolutely important, but like, uh, I'm also interested in knowing and finding out like, who are the people making those communities, you know? So that's a big problem in the United States, to be honest, you know, like, I just don't see a lot of communities uh, made by the people from those communities, you know? Like, I mean, I love Pioneer Works, but um, I mean, I know this is going public, but um, it's not being made, it's, Pioneer Works is not people from Red Hook, Brooklyn. It's, you know, it's amazing people, no doubt, but they're from the outside, you know? So I'm interested in like, who are these communities uh, comprised of? Uh, does, that, does that also like, I, don't, I didn't mean to throw a question back at your question, but I think that's an awesome yeah. that you brought up, you know? I think that's, a, and I'm, I would love to also hear other artists talk about this, you know? For sure. I mean, that's like literally why we started The Cube because it was like, we hated like reading these pitchfork reviews of like, that just weren't coming from a perspective. And I think like there also is something that has to do with like, age in there too as well like it's kind of weird for me to like see sometimes like like 50 year old pitchfork writers like reviewing like a young like 16 year old's project you know but yeah i think like having that community definitely yeah i, I totally agree with what you're saying because i mean they're the ones that still pick the winners you know and i think yeah. like it's like oh you're i mean it's like they're looking for all these markers now and like oh it's almost like it's grossly uh, fetishizing, like Teresa said, that's a great word, you know, I mean, I use that word for all, a lot of this discourse. It's like, okay, you're young, black, you're queer, you're making electronic dance music, you're going to be, you know, selected. But what, what if, like, you don't have access to some of those resources, or if you're queer, but you don't come from a certain class or whatever, you know, there was... Um, a lot of confusion about uh, some of the artists. I don't want to name names, but like, you know, there's a big artist in the electronic music world right now who is queer and trans, but like, um, they come from a very privileged background and a lot of people were calling them out. Like, but then, you know, that people came to the defense also like, hmm, but you know what? They're still doing good work for the community, you know, for the trans community as an example. I'm like, oh, okay. So then it gets difficult, you know, like, okay. So they come from a really privileged background. They could just, by the way into the scene so to speak you know but on the other hand they seem to be doing genuine work and bringing up other trans artists or doing other work with other people in the community i mean like so it's, it's definitely really complicated you know but like I, I agree like as people of color like we have to be aware of like these forces and call them out when when we need to and i i just don't think enough artists do that i think a lot of artists get comfortable once you get your piece of the pie or whatever you want to call it like you're like oh i'm good you know like i got red bull endorsements or you know you know i got my you know <laughs> a mutech lineup set or you know whatever i don't need to now worry about you guys and your struggle anymore you know but you know also as artists we're aware that it could be taken away from us at any moment because it feels like it's this flavor of the month fetishizing that's even more um 
pronounced and more like uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but like it's I don't know. It's just like it's really obvious and it's just there all the time, you know. I don't know. It's <laughs> I think about that a lot too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of like bringing a question into that. I feel like something we struggle with is definitely like like our mission is to like basically critique art from recognizing our perspective and really like critiquing with a lot of intention and how we speak about like artists and stuff but at the same time you know like we would definitely have more of a like a larger following if we did like talk about more like mainstream like popular music you know so like what do you think is the most effective way to like reach audiences that otherwise wouldn't be educated about this while still like maintaining the core of your mission if that makes sense wow that's a that's a pretty intense question <laughs> it's like, um, i think i mean you know i think also like look before i go on like you know you have to also remember we live in this world of like facebook and social media where the algorithms that control a lot of things that we can't control you know so you may have genuine intentions and make the most amazing post or have like man this artist is really doing such amazing work and let's bring it to the world you know but then the algorithms cut it down or it becomes like oh you're not paying for it so we're not going to show it you know so i think like those factors are important also to consider right uh, but i do think that um i think what you guys are doing is even more intense now because like um you have these platforms which are really controlled by um uh, to be blunt, just like, you know, a lot of like privileged folk. Um, so it's really important to like be a voice that's standing against that. And I do believe that just this, just like creating community, like I, I'm going to be, you know, sharing this post with like, you know, my audience or my people or my social media, and then other artists will do the same. And the hope is that that's one way to build it. And also hopefully if we ever get out of quarantine, I think like, since you guys are, have such a, diverse uh worldview and a diverse like you have so many things on your radar like you guys could be doing cool stuff like curating concerts or curating playlists or curating interview i mean there's so many other things to fit into this that i feel all that stuff helps grow audiences i don't think it, it's it's one thing anymore you know i think that um it, it has to be different things you know like just like I mentioned, like all those things come together, having an interview, having a playlist, having artists share content, having live streams, having um, in-person meetups, having um, forums where you guys just host discussions of like artists talking about social justice issues or, you know, gender issues or climate issues or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, so I think all those things together, I think feed into each other. And I think to me, I see that as, a really powerful way of like bringing people together and and growing it um, as opposed to just we're a magazine and we're only going to write about music you know you know what i mean like, does that make sense or yeah, that totally makes sense and sorry i think we got a little distracted from the music too but we can for sure bring it back to the album and i guess one of our questions was i think you guys just say so much on this new album and i was wondering if there's one thing that you want listeners to take away what would it be? Uh, oh my God, <laughs> there's so many things to take away. Um, I mean, again, the one thing is uh, that, um, you know, both Val and I really think a lot about bringing um, the spiritual into the electronic realm. And I don't mean spiritual in like some new agey way. I just mean in the sense of um, uh, 
who we are as people and also like our identities, whether it's like through repetitive drones or through, um, you know, like um, bass lines that hit you in a certain frequency and just like to try to get you to kind of be in like a more um, centered spiritual place. Uh, so that's one of our things, you know, and it's not a religious thing. It's not trying to uh, beat you over the head with any specific ideology. It's just what it means to you, you know? So for us, you know, for, I know for Val, it's much more specific also. Uh, and I wish we could have her here, but she's, you know, she teaches, she teaches at Berkeley um, in Boston. So she's got a pretty busy schedule um, uh, for the next few days. But um, the idea that, you know, we're channeling all these spirits and these traditions and like, I call it the ancients to the digital or ancients to the future, you know, like it's like rhythms from India, rhythms from Haiti, and it's got the spiritual connectedness. So one thing would be just to try to listen to it and just to like, you know, just hopefully it's a centering experience that we can find some calm, you know, in these crazy times. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think those are pretty much all the questions we had, but thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much and keep me posted and all the best to you guys. And, um, you know, um, let's connect out in the um, social media world and the real world when possible. Yes, thank you so much. I really love this conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Ravish Moman and check out Turning Jewels into Water. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.